to the Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm talking to Dr. Carolina Tropini. Dr. Tropini is an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of British Columbia, where her lab studies the microbiome. And so we talked all about the microbiome. There was some good discussion near the beginning about how the microbiome gets started in our bodies when we are babies, how the microbiome is seeded in large part by the mother's microbiome, the vaginal microbiome that the baby passes through when it's being born. We talked about how the microbiome is important for an infant's ability to digest certain unique compounds, certain nutrients that are present in breast milk. We talked about the differences in the microbiome that are observed when babies are born the traditional way versus through something like a C-section. And then we went through the different parts of the digestive system from the mouth to the stomach and intestines and talked about how the microbiome actually differs in these different places. How is the microbiome of the mouth different from the microbiome of the colon? What types of bacteria live there and what are they doing? How are they adapted to those little environments within our bodies. We talked about everything from feeding the microbiome, things like fiber and what that does and what the microbes produce from that that our bodies then use. We talked about how our diets today differ in their fiber content and other nutrients from traditional hunter-gatherers, the types of people uh, that we're descended from. We talked about uh, gut issues and gut diseases like inflammatory bowel disease. We talked about things like probiotics and antibiotics, how these things do or do not impact the microbiome. You know, what happens if you have to take antibiotics for an illness? Uh, What happens if you take probiotics? Are the probiotics that are uh, marketed to consumers uh, very much these days, are those actually likely to do anything of benefit for you? We also spent some time uh, in the middle or towards the end talking about microbial endocrinology. So that's the field looking at uh, how microbes, such as those found in our gut, actually influence things like sex hormones in our body. So microbes can actually produce or modify things like estrogens and androgens, like testosterone in our bodies. And that was just all in the context of the the wide-ranging influence that the microbiome can have on our biology. So if you're interested in those things, this will be a really interesting episode. We covered lots of interesting stuff in this one. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day. And it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mind and matter, athletic greens will give you a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form. So you just take one drop each day, a large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure. And vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode. So description, you'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. 
Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen and it's a handheld pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters to get $50 off your Lumen device today. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Carolina Tropini. What did you eat for breakfast? I ate cereal. What kind of cereal? Well, I, um, so this is a, it's kind of a loaded question because this is a strong area of negotiation with my family about which cereals are going to be allowed. So we do one scoop of cereal that has a little bit of sugar and one scoop of cereal that doesn't have sugar. But some uh, some kids in my family cheat and uh, get more sugar than they're supposed to. I see. And is that how much of that is intentional given what you study? Well, to have uh, cereals with high fiber is very intentional. So we, we try to we try to load up our diet with as much fiber as we can, but it turns out that um, the recommended amount uh, by uh, FDA regulations and uh, other sources of advice is actually really low compared to what humans have evolved with. So you normally see 35 grams recommended amount, but if you look at what uh, our ancestors did, and uh, uh, they of course had different health issues than we have now, but from the perspective of the microbiota, they seem to be doing better. They used to eat maybe 100 to 150 grams of fiber per day, which is an incredible amount and definitely not something that is easy to reach, no matter how fibrous your cereals maybe. And so are you, when you say ancestors, are you talking about hunter-gatherers living before agricultural society developed? Yeah, you know, the um, it's interesting where we draw that line of, in some sense, industrialization it seems to be a major issue for microbiota-related diseases. And so we normally think about most of the problems raising maybe in the last 100, 150 years in terms of how how much processed the food that uh, we were able to get has become. So, so are you saying uh, people, people living like 100, 150 years ago were getting 100 plus fiber grams of fiber per day? Not quite. The, to really go to 150 grams, like you need to go into much more ancestral societies and even so traditional societies right now that, that do rely on hunter gathering have uh, uh, are, are able to to get uh, that type of fiber from roots and um, vegetables that, that they source from. From the environment. Interesting. Um, and so you study the gut microbiome. We're going to like one of the things we're going to talk about today. I want to go through 
um, the different parts of the digestive system from from you know one end to the other and talk about the differences in the microbiome in each of these. But before we do that, I just want to give people like a bird's eye view of some certain certain things. So you hear about the microbiome a lot these days. You hear that there are I don't know what is it trillions of bacterial cells in our body. Um, you know, on the order of uh, the same number of cells in your body that are human cells are, are microbial cells. Um, and the microbiome is uh, got some diversity to it. That diversity varies uh, between individuals. It, it varies um, within an individual across their lifespan, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to get a sense for like how, like what the overall bird's eye level of diversity of the gut microbiome is. So in terms of the dominant phyla or types of bacteria in the human gut, what does that heterogeneity look like? Are there certain species or certain phyla that predominate heavily? Is it you know very spread out? What does that diversity actually look like? Yeah, that's a very good question. I, I like to think about our gut microbiota as a bit of um, the diversity that you might find in the forest. So there's, there's probably hundreds of different species that are lying around. And Characterizing them at the phylum level, I think is um, there's there's maybe five top types of, of phyla, but that doesn't tell you very much about how diverse that then may be. The, the diversity of the bacteria that are within our gut is is pretty incredible. You know, if you think about what it means to be a different family, you know, family within the world that we live in, we think about primates and felines, and so these are pretty different animals, uh, and in in the world of the microbiota, maybe we're looking at 20 different families. And so that gives you, I think, a little bit more of the sense of what the real diversity means. There are very specialized microbes that are very good at breaking down fiber, and they're just not good at all at dealing with um, a disruption that may be due to an over-the-counter drug that we take. Uh, there are going to be microbes that are very good at dealing with our immune system and then can hide places. There are microbes that can't tolerate the fact that uh, in some parts of the gut, there's actually no oxygen. And so they they don't do very well there and vice versa. Microbes that really like places that uh, are not oxygenated. And so the I think in thinking about it is a bit of a more of a forest ecosystem as opposed to just this catalog of microbes. It, it gives you a better appreciation of what the ecosystem really is and what it can do. And um, so we're going to talk about like eating and how the microbiome changes in response to, to diet and things like that in adults. Um, but a question I have is how does, how does the microbiome in a human being like originally get set up? Presumably there's a microbiome even in utero in the developing fetus and the developing baby. So where, where do the initial seeds of that microbiome actually come from? Uh, yes, this is a very controversial topic. So it's really unclear whether there are microbes in utero. There, there was some research that uh, uh, indicated there might be, but then there were some complaints that it might have been due to contamination. And so I think the jury is still a little bit out on how uh, how much it's present in utero. But the way that, if it, even if it is there, it's probably not in very large amounts because they're, they're not easily detectable. And so the, the main exposure to microbes that uh, uh, that a baby has when it comes to out in the world is is really uh, upon exposure in the in the vaginal tract when in, in the birthing canal so that's uh, you know before even the baby takes its first breath of air the first thing it's exposed to is uh, this coating of microbes that uh, uh, they come from the vagina they come from the stool they really kind of gets all mixed in together the the birthing process is, is messy and the once that 
initial inoculation gets set up, then uh, these are often microbes that will really help the, the baby be able to consume maternal milk. And it's really beautiful, in my opinion, how tightly connected this process is to the baby's health. Uh, if you think about uh, breastfeeding, about a quarter of the maternal milk by dry weight is actually components that the baby cannot consume. They're just sugars that are broken down by the microbiota and helps it get started in a way that is healthy. Mm. So this component is so important that even mothers that are malnourished still have it. You know, they will not have, say, all the fat compounds that are important for, for the baby, but it's they still have these sugars that are just for the microbiota. So, so it's you said one quarter of the weight of breast milk are sugars. The dry weight. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, of the dry weight, sugars that only the microbes can break down. That is correct. So, um, I mean, another question there is the 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 composition of the microbiome in the birth canal that's going to seed the baby's microbiome. You just said it's it's so it's very important because that's what's going to help the baby break down a lot of what is actually in the breast milk, which is going to be uh, the predominant food source for some time. I would imagine that the diet of the mother and other factors in her life can affect things going into her body. So diet, pharmaceuticals, what have you could affect the composition of the microbiome that she's going to see the baby with. But I would also imagine uh, how the baby is born could be relevant here since uh, not all babies are born by, by uh, the traditional uh, passage to the birth canal. Yes, absolutely. So from the perspective of the, the mother, we know that um, having both a healthy diet as well as a healthy microbiota during pregnancy is very important because those are the nutrients that the baby is exposed to while in the womb. And on the other side, what you get exposed to if a baby is born by C-section, say, uh, we've, we've found that babies tend to have a microbiota. Sometimes it's even more similar to the surgeon's skin microbiota hmm. than that of the mother. And so there are now um, a, a lot of effort into trying to understand, uh, uh, can we actually do maternal seeding for babies that have to be born by C-section so that uh, you can take a swab from, from the mother uh, ahead of time if it's a scheduled C-section and then uh, try to get this first process to happen a little bit more naturally. But um, maybe just to add one more thing about the, the importance of... Uh, the, the mother's microbiota, even before the birthing process, the, the reason why the microbiota is so important ultimately to our health is the fact that whatever microbes produce can ultimately affect any component in our body. So the same way that you might take a, a pill by mouth to affect your headache, even though you're taking it through your digestive tract, the same way the microbes, whatever they make and they secrete, can make it through your entire blood system and affect any cell in your body. And so you can imagine that we have evolved with these microbes over millions of years. And we've come to expect, in terms of our development, certain compounds that these microbes gave us. And so changes to this microbiota can potentially make an effect for a lot of different types of development. And so we're just starting to learn about some of these delicate connections that overall they're quite robust because they have come from millions of years of evolution, but we have stepped in heavily and heavy handed uh, in, in the last 100, 150 years. And I don't want to get too off track here, but I mean, I was blown away when you said one quarter of the dry weight of breast milk are things like sugars that 
the, the human baby itself cannot digest unless it's got the right microbes inside to do that that for them. What about like you know we ma- we make so many like modern alternative foods today. When I think about something like baby formula, does it have those types of sugars in it? It doesn't yet. There, this is a, a big race for a lot of the the formula producers to try to have more of this diversity. But the problem is that this diversity of sugars is very hard to obtain, and uh, synthesizing these sugars is is not easy at all. So, it's um, um, it's also something that you cannot get from other animals. For example, milk from cows doesn't have quite the same diversity of these sugars. Uh, milk from primates is still different. It seems to be it's something that is very very specific to the the human host that that we have this. Yeah, I mean the other thing that that you said was very important. I think is even a malnourished mother will still produce those sugars. So they must be very important for something. Uh, what are the mel- metabolic consequences of these sugars as opposed to something like glucose or the, the ordinary sugars we normally think about? Are they processed differently? Are they having different physiological effects for the baby? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you think about sugars and even even sugars that we think are not caloric for us because we can't break them down. Those are sugars that usually the microbiota will break them down. So stevia, all these different uh, alternative sugars are things that the microbiota, because of the incredible capacity of, of breaking down different compounds ha- it has, uh, it will likely be able to draw some energy from it. And so from the perspective of these special sugars that go in maternal milk, these are very, very special things that we have evolved to produce in order to keep our microbiota together. And um, on the other side, if you have something like pure glucose, pure glucose gets absorbed and goes into your bloodstream immediately. Sugars that cannot be broken down by, by us, but we're basically the host of this microbiota. That's kind of how we, we, we term it in the, in the field. These sugars will make it very far down the digestive tract. And by making it that far down, it means that they're not released into the bloodstream really quickly, which means that it's basically it's a longer term process of of, uh, of consumption, which is different than if you have um, if you if you drink an orange juice versus if you eat the orange where the sugars are being liberated is in a very different place. And so this this liberation of sugars, when it happens via the microbiota in distal parts of the gut, those tend to be just what we have evolved with. And so in some sense, like they're healthy just by default, because that's what our whole system is expecting to see. It's not expecting to see pure sugar within your mouth, say. I see. So so the baby's probably getting a more um, uh, a slower drip, a more uh, consistent uh, intake of sugar for energy throughout the day, simply in virtue of the fact that it's got these sugars that uh, are slower to absorb. And also these sugars don't get turned into glucose for the baby. They mm. the microbiota will consume them and it turns them over into other compounds. So these compounds are called the short-chain fatty acids. They're some of the, the major compounds that are produced by the microbiota. And they're so important for our gut that if you if you give choice to colonocytes, so these are some of the cells that uh, are part of the colon. If you give a choice for to these cells between eating pure sugar and eating these compounds that ultimately are turned into sugar for energy by the cells, they will actually choose to use the microbiota-produced compounds, the short-chain fatty acids. Uh, the short-chain fatty acids have um, a lot of importance also for uh, uh, reducing inflammation. Uh, they are important because they're uh, they're signal molecules for the brain. They have a lot of more complex interactions with the 
our immune system and with the function of our bodies than than sugar can have. You know, sugar is like this 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 cheap coin uh, that you know kind of gets exchanged for for energy very very rapidly. But these more complex compounds uh, have really intricate uh, relationship with uh, our body function uh, across the entire body. I see. So, so many cells of the colon, or at least certain cells of the colon, you have them the choice between using short chain fatty acids or straight glucose, they will prefer the short chain fatty acids. And presumably the way to think about this would be that we, we've just, we've evolved for so long in the presence of uh, enough fiber and other things to feed this microbiome. And those short chain fatty acids are produced by that microbiome, uh, you know, in the colon. Um, and so those cells are just adapted metabolically to be able to most efficiently extract or, or use the short chain fatty acids for energy, um, even even more effectively than than glucose. Yeah, that's that's really well said. And you know, in, in another way in which we see this really tight connection is in the fact that um, our our body creates this layer of separation with a microbiota. And so this is a, a mucus layer get this created, in, in fact, on most surfaces, but very much so in the digestive tract. And this surface not only provides a mechanical barrier that prevents the microbiota from invading us, but it's also a source of a lot of these sugar types that are uh, part of this mesh of this mucus uh, component. And so when we don't eat our fiber, we're still able to feed our microbiota based on these compounds. Uh, the problem is, is uh, that if the microbiota doesn't have any fiber, then it will make this uh, layer much smaller and thinner, which then creates problems with pathogens. Uh, but in some mammals, this layer is so important because uh, you can imagine what might happen uh, uh, during hibernation for some animals. Uh, some animals are, are not uh, eating anything during this time, but they still want to keep their microbiota. and. Uh, these animals that hibernate have um, thicker mucus layers prior to hibernation that allows their microbiota to survive and actually produce nitrogen even during times when they're not being fed. And so again, like they're, they're just really beautiful uh, and complex interactions that we just have evolved with. And that's that's kind of how our, our whole uh, mammalian function uh, uh, is expecting to have this microbial component. I see. So before we get to the oral microbiome, the the gut microbiome in the colon we've we've been involving in concert with these microbes for a very long time and that microbiota down at that end of the digestive system is expecting a lot of fiber uh, and the fiber is then turned into short chain fatty acids by those microbes and the cells of our colon really like those short chain fatty acids. They're really used to them. They're adapted to using them for energy. So what you're, I don't want to tell people there's no such thing as too much fiber, but it sounds like the dietary guidelines you said, the fiber recommendations are much lower than what humans would have been consuming for most of human history. And so they're probably well under what our cells are expecting, so to speak. Yes. But here, where is the trick though? The problem is that when we haven't eaten this type of food over generations, we've actually lost some of the microbes that were able to break down this fiber. So it's not that today you and I could go out and say like, I'm gonna eat 150 grams of fiber and be okay. We probably would have really bad tummy aches. Mm. And in fact, some patients that have uh, inflammatory bowel disease, they find eating fiber really problematic, even though it's ideally that's, we would really like them to have more of these anti-inflammatory compounds via the microbiota. 
this is very much an ecosystem issue because you you not only need to have uh, the nutrient sources for the microbiota, you also need to have the right microbes to be there to break it down and to make the right compounds uh, to do this. I see. So over time, as humans started eating uh, less and less fiber and their, and their diet started to change, certain lineages of bacteria in the microbiome started dying off and they're not with us anymore. And so if you were to just go back to eating, you know, if, if you were like one of the paleo diet people and you really wanted to literally eat like a, like a hunter gatherer did, that would actually be problematic because you don't actually have the microbiome composition that our ancestors did. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. So let's, um, let's not just imagine a, a, a normal human adult. Um, and, and we could unpack that as much as you think is necessary, but we're thinking about adults now. Uh, let's maybe walk people through how the microbiome looks and works differently in different parts of the digestive system, uh, starting starting with the oral microbiome. So, so what are the microbes like in our mouth? How are they different from microbes, you know, further down in the digestive tract? And what are they doing for us there? Are they involved in things like pre-digestion of food? Are they doing other things? What does the oral microbiome look like? Yeah, the oral microbiome is... Um is very diverse. It's very uh, tolerant of oxygen because, of course, it's in, a, in an oxygenated environment. Uh, it's um, uh, It gets constantly washed down to the digestive tract, so in some sense it can seed the rest of the gut uh, by being there. And it's thought to break down a lot of sugars that uh, that come in from uh, from our diet. So, you know, the, during mastication, that's when we start breaking down the food and uh, these bacteria take advantage of this. And so, in fact, uh, the, the mouth microbiota is probably one of the first parts of the microbiota that was identified in uh, Anthony van Leeuwenhoek in the, uh, um, I guess, 16 and maybe early 1700s, uh, was looking at uh, uh, his dental plaque and uh, looking at uh, how these animalcules that he called them, but that actually ended up being uh, bacteria, how they were um, uh, moving around. And so these, these microbes have long been known to be there and we try to get rid of them by brushing our teeth. <laughs> um, but in practice, they, they just like any living organism, they just try to take advantage of the food resources that are available to them. Uh, they can create these um, strong biofilms. And so that's what dental plaque ends up being. There are these uh, strong constructs of uh, different species of bacteria that form these, uh, uh, the strongest sometimes quite hard uh, layers, which are hard to get rid of. And the part of the problem and part of the interactions that of course we have uh, with um, these microbes is what happens in bad times. So when we get uh, uh, caries and uh, different uh, uh, dental disease, that's when there's sugar that gets left over. These bacteria can ferment the sugar. They produce acids, they make holes into our teeth. And so through these holes, they can start building up larger colonies and more sugar gets in and then you, you kind of get this uh, tooth decay process that uh, that takes place. Hmm. And again, this is something that our ancestors didn't have to deal with because they just didn't have access to sugar. And so that's not something that, um, you know, we're, we're ready to deal with uh, evolutionarily speaking. Hmm. Uh, as, so, uh, so normally when we think about dental hygiene uh, and cavities, we think about, um, we think about the the practices that we have like brushing our teeth and using mouthwash so if someone is getting cavities it means you're not brushing your teeth and or flossing enough you're not cleaning your mouth enough um how much of the development of say cavities or something just 
general dental hygiene, how much of it is to do with uh, us uh, engaging in those practices versus uh, having a diet that's conducive to cavity causing bacteria. So I guess another way to put this is if you uh, took a hunter gatherer, an ancestral human, and you just fed them their normal diet and they're in that context, and you took a modern human and you fed them, say, the standard American diet, and neither one of them brushed their teeth with toothpaste. We did whatever hunter gatherers did with their teeth. Or you took that hunter gatherer and you just gave them the modern diet. Um, would, would they develop more cavities because they're getting more sugars? Yeah, simple sugars that get stuck between the teeth are, are a major cause for cavities. And so the the part of the the point is that it, the the only types of sugars that hunter gatherers were really exposed to, and we see this in in current traditional populations as well, is is maybe honey, berries, and and fruits. But in those cases too, the sugar tends to be sequestered within fibrous structure. So even if you get some fiber stuck in your teeth, that probably is bugging you and you take it off. And so, um, you know, the, the old way of, of brushing teeth is, you know, chewing on a stick. And mm. uh, and so the, those type of things work just fine. Uh, people were, were not really having, a, a, as, as far as a, a we know anyway, we're not really having the same dental problems that occurred when uh, uh, sugar was discovered and how tasty it is mm-hmm. kind of became clear. I see. So, so in the absence of food, where the sugar is uh, readily available uh, to the the microbes in your tea uh, in your mouth, um, the old way, the traditional way that hunter gatherers would uh, take care of their teeth was basically just physically remove obvious pieces of food because any piece that was there um, wouldn't have nearly as much sugar exposed and available to the microbes as much of our food does today. Right, and you know, and you can kind of see it also with um, with pets as well. You know, we're, we're now f- having to brush our pets' teeth, which is not something that pets in the wild don't really do. You know, the way that dogs keep their teeth clean is because they they chew on bones, and that helps them keep things clean. Uh, and but the, the introduction of also sugar, and you know, who can resist a puppy asking for a piece of uh, <laughs> your um, your candy, right? But uh, yeah, this ends up being the same problem for other animals as well. Interesting. So um, as you go from the uh, oral microbiome through the esophagus and into the stomach, um, how does how does the how does the size and the diversity change? How does what the microbes are doing change? You know, one obvious thing that comes to mind is when you get down to the stomach, it's obviously a very acidic environment. Um, the same microbes won't be able to survive down there. Uh, but what does the microbiome look like in the stomach, and, and what what are those microbes doing in that organ? So in the stomach, the low pH is really this barrier for a lot of pathogens to get through. And so one of the things that is, for example, interesting is that for for people that take antacids, uh, this tends to be a, a, a risk factor for developing certain types of uh, uh, intestinal infections. And so again, like this is a um, at, at the core, a big function of the stomach is to, to limit the infection from potential uh, pathogens that may be coming through. But one of the things that's interesting about the stomach is that while in the uh, in, in the main part in the bulk is uh, very acidic, close to the stomach epithelium, you actually have very neutral pH. And so there's there's still a mucus layer, and there are microbes, uh, notably Helicobacter pylori. Which was discovered in its connection with uh, with stomach cancer, 
you can reside there. And so over time, there's been this discovery and this appreciation that even microbes that uh, have long, for a long time thought to be really problematic, such as Helicobacter, actually have a, a positive effect on our immune system. So one of, one of the ways that now the, the understanding around Helicobacter has changed is that it actually the best situation that maybe would be possible is that if you were exposed to helicobacter when you're a child, but you get rid of it before adulthood, that may be the best way of setting yourself up for, for health. Because helicobacter later on in life is correlated with uh, cancer, but uh, a lack of helicobacter seems to not stimulate the immune system in a way that uh, um, that is positive enough. And so uh, this type of... Um, I think interesting interactions with the bacteria that can survive in places that are very inhospitable, such as the stomach, uh, kind of gives a bit of a, a vignette into how complicated some of these interactions are. You know, there's there's not going to be a microbe that is just good or just bad. Usually there's this whole spectrum of positive and negative aspects to it. Hmm. And so the stomach is this huge barrier to pathogens because it's acidic. Um it opens up into the small intestine, and that's where a lot of our, our nutrient absorption is going to be happening. I would imagine the microbiome is probably bigger and more diverse when you get into the small intestine, you start moving forward. So is, is that true? And you know, just in general, how how is the microbiome composition changing as you go through the small intestine? The small intestine is still very aerobic. So it has microbes that are able to tolerate this uh, uh, level of oxygen. But it's also, as you said, the site where most of the nutrient absorption comes in. And so there the immune system goes down hard on the microbiota and prevents large scale proliferation. So you actually have low diversity at low overall levels in an effort to try to have most of the nutrients actually being absorbed by us. And it's not until the later parts of the digestive tract that then the levels of the microbiota become incredibly high and incredibly dense. I see. So because this is a site of stuff coming into the body, uh, nutrients, um, but you also don't want bad things like pathogens to get into the body from the, the the cavity or the lumen of the intestine. I imagine this is why, so when you say the immune system is active, I imagine that includes just a lot of immune cells that are surveilling the area, um, tight junctions that you know physically prevent um, stuff from getting in, all, all of that stuff. Yeah, and also um, antimicrobial peptides. There's there's just a lot of activity in the small intestine to ensure that the microbial levels are really low. Mm. And when that doesn't happen, then there's there's specific diseases that have overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine. And so, what um, what would be examples of those diseases, and what what are some of the general symptoms? Yeah, so uh, one of the probably most notable one is SIBO. So this is a, a small intestinal uh, uh, overgrowth of bacteria. And in those cases, um, there's uh, there there's some diseases that, that unfortunately are not very highly um, controlled. And one of the, the the challenges is that there are our usual way. Uh, in by our, I mean like as a as a human community and human society of trying to combat bacteria uh, when they're overgrowing is using antibiotics. But one of the issues with using antibiotics, as we found, is that uh, you have this very non-specific way of affecting the growth of many, many different uh, bacteria, both the good ones and the bad ones. And so the the fact that uh, bacteria can become resistant to these antibiotics has basically uh, taken away a lot of the tools that we had initially to combat some of these diseases. 
And so the right now, the use of antibiotics are around uh, a lot of these diseases of overgrowth is changing because they're not as effective as uh, they once were. Interesting. Can you say more about these antimicrobial peptides? Um, just and briefly explain for people who don't know what, what exactly is a peptide, and you know where 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 are they produced in the intestine? And um, I mean, are there? I, I would imagine it sounds like there's a lot of them produced, so they're, they're very important here. Yeah. So antimicrobial peptides are this innate way of um, the animal body to regulate which um, or how how much of microbes may be around so a peptide is a is a small component small part of a protein and uh, they're um they're the components that they're very small and they're usually charged they're charged in a way that they can interact with other molecules that are, have the opposite charge generally bacteria have uh, a negatively charged membrane and a lot of these uh, peptides tend to be positive and so by attaching them to the membranes they can disrupt them then and then have a uh, this very very blanket way of of keeping numbers down, uh, and uh, the, the the immune system has a way of uh, producing these uh, uh, that basically is like kind of a first response to to changes that is not adaptive. So we, you know when we talk about uh, um, infections, there's there's two types of response that the immune system has. The first one is the innate response, which is the first blanket response of uh, uh, say, you know, you can imagine like in a city that is being attacked, uh, you shut down uh, uh, and close down all the doors. And so like this is, it's not a non-specific way of trying to keep out uh, the the problematic uh, uh, parts. And so the, the these, um, uh, these peptides are a way in which the immune system responds very, very rapidly in a non-specific way to uh, to this type of insults. And the other one is the, the adaptive response, which is the one that is then more sophisticated, but takes longer to actually uh, come up. I see. So, so as, a, as opposed to generating uh, antibodies, which uh, tend to be very specific for particular mm. proteins from particular bugs, these antimicropeptides are just sort of like sticky little mini proteins that just sort of stick to the outer surface of any bacteria that might go through there. Yeah, it, at a very high level. That's, uh, that's kind of the principle. Okay. So you get through the small intestine. Um, much of our nutrient absorption will have happened now. Um, you get to the large intestine and it sounds like in the large intestine, you're going to have a larger microbiome, more microbes, and presumably the composition or the types of species living there is also very different. That's right. So by the time that you get to the large intestine, all the tasty stuff that we wanted to take up from the diet, <laughs> we've done that. It's it's out. The, what's left is uh, things that we really cannot uh, digest, and so a lot of the fiber. And, uh, and now that we have uh, diets that are very high in, um, uh, in in protein and in nitrogen, there actually tends to be more nitrogen that comes through in that part of the gut, and that's also one of the factors that is just changing the way that the microbiota can function because now we can use the these more precious uh, uh, nutrients. But by that point, because the Ideally, the fiber is quite diverse. There's a lot of different linkages that are connecting these complex sugars. And so you need a, a lot of different types of microbes that will have a lot of different types of enzymes. And so to give you a sense of the metabolic capability that the microbiota in our, our large intestine has, uh, the, the estimates are about uh, 150 times the, the number of genes than us humans have. And so like that's an immense metabolic capability that we don't, we don't want to store within us we're basically just offloading all of this complex biochemistry to microbes that naturally have uh, 
much smaller genomes, but there's many of them and many different species that can break down these fibers. So this fiber gets down to the large intestine because we can't digest it. It can be broken down by all of these microbes. Um, we've evolved with them down there for so long that our bodies expect that fiber to feed those microbes. They generate other things like the short chain fatty acids you were talking about. Um, there's more to unpack there, but can you just explain for people what is fiber and why can't we digest it? Oh yeah, that's an excellent question. So fiber is... Um... It's a bit of a catch-all and very fuzzy phrase. And in fact, in the in the microbiota field, like we've been trying to uh, to come up with um, with a with a better terminology around it. So we often talk about uh, microbiota accessible fiber, which is basically compounds that are not broken down by us uh, that are made mostly of uh, sugar residues that are connected together with different. Uh, glycosidic linkages. And so like these are, are different connections that in order to be broken down to get to the simpler sugars, you need very specific enzymes that will allow these, uh, uh, these enzymatic processes to take place. And we can break down some type of fiber, right? If you think about uh, um, starches, we have some ability of, of breaking them down. So we, we do have some inherent ability for simple sugars to break them down. But for sugars that are more complex and they're very highly branched, we just don't have the enzymes to do this. And so that's when we really rely on the microbiota to do this. And so, so like, other than the short chain fatty acids, is there anything else that gets produced by the microbiome in the large intestine that we are absorbing other types of nutrients or, or other types of molecules that are relevant physiologically? Yes, an incredible amount. It's still very much dark matter. We do not know how many. We just know that the an incredible proportion of the molecules that we have in our blood are not molecules that we produce. They come from our diet and they come from uh, uh, metabolites that our microbiota produces. And we're just starting to uh, look at the tip of the iceberg because it's it's really incredible the diversity of compounds that get made. And a lot of the compounds are very small molecules that will make it to the brain. They will make it to every distal side of our body. And in, in trying to understand how different molecules will affect our health is, is a very complex question, particularly if you're to study it in, in humans, because every human has a different microbiota, a different diet, a different lifestyle. And so making these connections uh, really requires careful experimentation. Yeah, I was struck by what you said earlier too. That um, as the human diet has changed over time, um, directionally we've been eating less and less fiber. We've actually seen a die-off of certain bacterial lineages that we used to have inside of us that enabled us to deal with that volume of fiber. So obviously, the microbiome is going to change in response to our diet. I'm interested in sort of the the sensitivity or stability of the microbiome. So, for example. Um, Obviously, obviously, the microbiome is going to change in response to what we put in our bodies food-wise, but is it, um, is it super sensitive? If you change your diet at all, is it definitely going to change it, or can um, certain populations kind of become entrenched and sort of impervious to certain changes in the diet? Yeah, the, you know, it's, it's both very malleable, but it's also very unique, and so uh, there's been studies showing that you can tell 
who's been in a room just based on the microbial signature that they leave behind. And so, and this is something that is pretty stable over the long term, as long as you don't do really extreme changes. And at the same time, when we look at the abundance of different species, those can change and fluctuate a lot because one day you ate strawberries and, you know, that caused a bloom in a specific type of bacteria that really likes to break down uh, the strawberry fiber. And so the there's on one side, I think that it's, it's very, very exciting how how malleable the microbiota is because you can change it really drastically based on your diet. Uh, on the other side, we know that it's hard to have new species entrench. And so particularly when you're when you're an adult and your immune system is uh, is now pretty set on uh, who's going to be allowing to to come in and out. And so, um, you know, we talked about the interplay between the immune system and the microbiome earlier. We talked about antibiotics. I would imagine that one major way that the microbiome can have big shifts that stabilize such that someone, you know, starts out with a microbiome, you know, microbiome A, and they end up with microbiome B, which is just very, very different. Um, I imagine one way that that can be triggered is through uh, the heavy use of antibiotics. So if someone say gets a, an infection and they're taking one or more antibiotics for an extended period of time, um, let's imagine a situation like that. The person goes on antibiotics, they get rid of their infection, they come off antibiotics. Let's assume their diet is constant. Um, is the microbiome likely going to go back to the way it was, or is it likely going to be different in some important way? This is, an, I think, a, a really important topic and a really important question of kind of this recovery. There's been some studies that basically have shown that um, the use of antibiotics uh, usually changes the microbiota and particularly that affects species that are at low abundance, just because they're, the fluctuations that end up maybe causing them to disappear, then if you don't get them back, they're just gone from your own ecosystem. And we, we live in a society that is very different from our ancestral ways, which prevents us from getting certain types of infections, but also prevents us from being re-inoculated by microbes that we might want to keep around. And so if someone is uh, uh, taking antibiotics, uh, it really depends on how long the antibiotic course is. And also it depends on uh, um, on the practical re-exposure that they might have to some of these microbes. And in some of the, the studies, they, they also looked at, uh, is the microbiota that we get back uh, um, the same? And are there ways in which we can help it? So one of the things that people often think about when you think about the microbiota is thinking about uh, probiotics may be beneficial. And, and actually, the in, in the, those uh, studies, it looked like exposure to probiotics actually got you to a different microbiota than what you started with. And the, the best way to get to the same microbiota that you had before was basically keeping a stock of the microbiota you had before antibiotics and then taking it back after, uh, which of course are, are still very experimental ways of, uh, of doing um, microbiota restoration, uh, but, but in the same light in which how we're doing ecosystem restoration, that's a little bit how, mm -hmm. how we think of uh, microbiota therapies. Yeah. So, I mean, so it makes sense. The ideal way to to replenish the microbiome you had would be to keep a sample somehow uh, of of the one that you started with. Let's force ourselves to be brutally practical here, um, especially for for the people listening that that are concerned about microbiome health. So, you said you have kids at home. You probably have young kids at home. It sounds like. So, at some point, if it hasn't happened already, some of them are going to get sick, and they're probably going to uh, require or be recommended to take some antibiotics. So, given 
your background as a microbiomeologist and your role as a mother who's had to deal or will have to deal at some point, presumably with the use of antibiotics in your children. What are the major things you're thinking about in terms of how you're going to respond during and after those antibiotics are used in terms of how you manage their, their lifestyle? Yeah. So I mean, first off, I should say that I'm not that kind of doctor, so I should really not be giving uh, any clinical advice. No, yeah, no, I'm saying like, right, your kids get sick, they go to the physician. Yeah. 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 Um, So, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that's really challenging about uh, the microbiota and how we can use it in health is that humans are very, very good at dealing with acute problems. Humans are really, really bad at acuting, dealing with uh, chronic problems. And the microbiota demonstrates itself into chronic problems, not in the acute problems. So if you have a, say, a microbiota that is not very diverse, you may be at higher risk of developing inflammatory diseases, you may be at higher risk of developing obesity, but these are all things that don't play out overnight. And you can think of, uh, of the decision that a physician has to do when there's a risk of sepsis, and the risk of sepsis is maybe one in 10,000, how do you weigh that against a risk of even one in 500 of developing obesity in 20 years. Those are the type of questions that when people are trying to use antibiotics and decide whether to use them or not, sometimes are faced with. And in general, people will tend to try to not get sepsis right now and uh, downplay the effect, even though it might be a higher probability over the longer term. And so from the perspective of taking antibiotics, what I can tell you about, uh, you know, what, what I try to do personally is try to resist the impulse of treating something immediately. Uh, clinicians are also uh, becoming more and more aware of the negative effects of antibiotics, uh, not just because of the, the effects of the, to the microbiota, but also because of how we're, we're raising uh, antimicrobial resistance that then we will not be able to fight uh, by the overuse of uh, this antibiotics. And so I think that overall, the, the level of antibiotics that are being prescribed is much, much lower than it was uh, even five to 10 years ago. But in practice, what I think that means is that if someone is sick before giving antibiotics to give it a chance to know whether it's maybe a viral infection, and then the antibiotics actually would really not be helpful. And um, it's also a matter of, of, of changing our perspective uh, also as patients to to know that some of the time, the best way to beat an infection might just be to wait for our own immune system to take over and do what, what it knows how to do. Uh, but again, you know, when you're a mother and you're exhausted and your kid is crying and has a fever, you want to do something about it. So they're not easy decisions. Mm-hmm. And so um, let's just say for whatever reason, um, a mother has um, consulted with a physician her child is sick with some kind of bacterial infection. It's decided that antibiotics are appropriate for that infection and they are used. Um, if you were in that situation, thinking about the microbiome and the recovery phase, would you be inclined just to make sure the diet was what you thought it should be? Would you be inclined to use something like probiotics? How, how would you think about it in that particular situation? Yeah. So, you know, I can tell you what. What I do is is kind of an individual. Um, I've had to take antibiotics. Um, you know, there have been times. I mean, antibiotics are, of course, incredibly important to to combat infections. And so, in terms of the recovery from um, for probiotics, we're not at the stage yet where you can save your microbiota and then re-inoculate yourself. And so, uh, 
what I try to do is to basically have a natural recovery of my microbiota by having uh, different types of fiber. The problem with probiotics in pills is that you're inoculating a billion of one species. And so try to imagine what that looks like in, in say, Yosemite has had a massive wildfire and now you throw in a billion rabbits. Is that good? Is that bad? Will the rabbits even survive, right? Um, and so in trying to think about the microbiota is a little bit like your own ecosystem, that's also the same principles that we should apply here. If you want to do ecosystem restoration, you're probably not going to be doing very much good by adding a billion rabbits, but maybe you want to try to get rid of um, overgrowing species that may be invasive. And so you can do that uh, with respect to your gut by you know, starting with actually foods that are not super high fiber if you've had a tummy ache. Uh, and so like, you know, step in and introduce it more slowly. So you're really trying to rebuild your ecosystem and allowing it to recover in, in kind of its entirety. Um, there's also different types of probiotics, you know, probiotics that come in a pill form, those tend to have just one or a couple of species that in some cases may have been proven to have some positive effects, sometimes not. Uh, a lot of the ones that you find over the counter are are not really proven. You don't really know whether they're rare species or not. But there's also ways of, for example, eating fermented foods, which have uh, naturally occurring bacteria, and those tend to be uh, very positive for simulating the immune system. And so th it, unless certain things have uh, have really been shown to have like a positive effect, uh, I, I my family and I tend to stick with things like we'll try to have some more fermented food and try to rebuild the the natural um, environment. And the the other part of it, I think, that is a in kind of a an approach in in, in lifestyle um, that to try to ensure that you're not blocking yourself off from any microbial exposure. That is not how we evolved. When obviously you don't want to go out and <laughs> try to catch all the infections. But there's also no need to be scared of exposing yourself to dirt. Uh, we, we see this in, uh, uh, this is the data that has been really clearly shown how, for example, kids that uh, uh, have dogs, kids that have older siblings, kids that have some way of bringing some amount of dirt in the house or, or live on a farm have much lower incidence of asthma and allergies compared to kids that live in very, very clean environments. Mm. And so there is some amount of exposure to these microbes that is just important for your immune system. And so every time that you disrupt your microbiota, that's something to think about that that in exposing yourself with microbes that are um, are healthy for you uh, is a good way to try to to keep this ecosystem working as it should. Mm -hmm. That might be counterintuitive for some people. You know, if you grow up on a farm, you have a lower rate of asthma. But like, aren't you around more animals and more things that could trigger you know asthma-like symptoms? So, is this are you getting is this the the hygiene hypothesis? And can you just kind of mm -hmm. unpack that a little bit more for people? Yeah, absolutely. So this was something that um, was found uh, pretty early on in um, in settlements of uh, uh, in city settlements that that people tend to have this hay fever when they would go uh, visit their relatives in uh, in farms. And so this this correlation of these hay fevers would then then turn out to be allergies. And the fact that they were more prevalent uh, in in city settlements as opposed to uh, more pastoral and uh, uh, countryside uh, type of um, communities started then asking the question of, is the cleansiness part of the reason why a lot of these uh, this, this type of inflammatory and uh, allergic diseases were were becoming more prevalent? 
And so uh, since then, there's now been a lot of studies that have really shown that uh, our immune system, particularly in childhood, needs to have the right types of triggers in order to work properly. And if it doesn't have exposure to some types of trigger, and, and these are, are often bacterial or dirt triggers, then it starts acting against compounds such as pollen and, and other types of allergens that, that otherwise would have not been a problem. Interesting. Um, so the gut micro, when you think about the gut microbiome, you know, we think about obviously the gut, um, stuff that has to do directly with the gut, the absorption of nutrients, um, diseases of the gut, things like that. But the influence of the microbiome, as, as you know, and I think many people know at this point, um, extends beyond the gut. Um, and it can affect, you know, the, the, what our microbiome in our gut is doing can affect things, you know, elsewhere in the body. One of the areas here that I thought was really interesting that you wrote a paper on has to do with uh, microbial endocrinology. So can you explain what that little subfield is and, and start to talk about the microbiome in that context? Yeah, absolutely. So the, I think this is a super exciting um, field because it, it's a, it connects the endocrine and so the, the, the hormonal changes in our body also to our microbes. And, and I think it really underscores how, how tightly connected all of the processes in our body are. We tend to think about hormones as a way that is very, very human, that uh, affects um, uh, puberty, it affects uh, estrous cycles, it, it affects uh, um, a, a lot of uh, uh, parts that we think that are, are, are intrinsic, intrinsically human. But what it turns out is that the hormones that we produce can be modified by the microbes in our gut, uh, and they can change either by activating or deactivating them. So to give you a very high level uh, uh, summary about this, uh, in, uh, in either the testes or uh, in the uterus, there's hormones that are produced. And so for females, we mostly think about uh, estrogens and for males, we mostly think about testosterone, but these are produced both by males and females. And when they're produced uh, and they're given out into the blood, they're usually come associated with uh, some specific proteins that would prevent them from actually becoming active. Uh, and there's also some modifications that happen in the liver that inactivate these hormones. So the body is constantly turning off these hormones and the way that they act. So while normally when we go, say, get a blood, blood drawn and we look at these hormones, we normally took, take a look at the overall levels. But it's not always that uh, you'd be looking at the active levels, which ultimately are what make a difference. And so while the liver continuously inactivates these hormones and uh, shuttles them uh, in a way that will make them more likely to go out in urine, a lot of gut microbes actually do the opposite. They will take away this inactivating molecules and will activate them again. And so you have this balance in which uh, your microbes uh, can activate them. Some microbes can even degrade hormones like testosterone. And you have this balance in which now your, your body is responding both to cues that come from you know our our own cells and cues that come from the microbiota in in order to 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 change these processes. I see. So so the microbes can uh, directly. It sounds sounds like you know they can um, directly modify things things like sex hormones. Exactly. Is there are there any things? Um, are there metabolites they produce that have? Um, estrogenic or androgenic effects. So for example, are there certain components in food that 
are, are eaten up by the bacteria and causing them to spit out something that has a hormone-like effect in us. Yeah. So uh, this can happen in a number of different ways. Like there are so rich products that uh, can be metabolized into compounds that look like estrogens. And so like these can get uh, cross-react with estrogen receptors and uh, give some of the same effect with uh, mm-hmm. with estrogen. So you said uh, soy-rich products? Yes. Okay. Uh, the other thing that can happen is that there are some microbes that can produce their own hormones, particularly in the case of testosterone. And they can do this starting from cholesterol in a very similar way to how as humans, we use cholesterol to to get down to hormone creation. Do we know um, do we know the net effects of any of that? So, for example, um, you know, soy, like soybean oils, things like that, very common. They've become much more common um, in recent years than they have in the past. Is that having like a net estrogenic or anti-estrogenic effect through some kind of competition between these uh, estrogenic metabolites and our endogenous hormones? Yeah, that's a very good question, and I think a very complex one. I, I'm not aware of, um, I guess, of, of a, a full agreement about this. That you know, there there are human populations that have consumed soy for millennia, uh, and you know, in in as part of their normal diet and their normal cycle. So, uh, I, I don't think that a blanket statement would be appropriate. But in, in it really very much depends on how different uh, uh, microbiota are balanced. It also depends on how the diet may be balanced with other compounds. Uh, and but there there's definitely some of the data that I think is very strong in in showing the the impact of the microbiota and modifying these hormones is that when we look at animal models that do not have a microbiota, so these are we were talking about that uh, with um, in humans in in mammals anyway, in the uterus, there's not thought to be a microbiota. So there's animal models that can be derived by c-section and do not have microbes anymore. And so these are, can be a way in which we can test like what is the effect of not having a microbiota. And so in these animal models that don't have a microbiota, but have a, an otherwise normal function and normal diet, uh, we see that they have very strong changes in uh, in their puberty, in their sexual function. And so this underscores the importance of the microbiota in, in, in having some of these uh, uh, changes to uh, hormonal health that, that are normal. I see. So it sounds like uh, most of the details around all of that have yet to be worked out, but we at least know that if you take away the microbiome entirely, you see hormonal and other effects that are strong enough to change things like when puberty happens. So, so pretty major developmental changes. Yeah. And, you know, some of the, the other studies that have been done uh, have been, for example, around prostate cancer. Uh, and this is a, a disease that uh, uh, often there's imbalances and maybe to high levels of testosterone. And one of the things that uh, sometimes is done in patients that have uh, a prostate cancer in a way that uh, where there's too much production of testosterone is uh, that there's a castration that takes place to try to reduce the testosterone and, and limit the the impact uh, of uh, the negative impact of the testosterone. But there, there have been... Uh, some patients that were found to be um, uh, basically insensitive to, to the castration, they were still producing very high levels of hormones. And in those cases, the microbiota was implicated uh, in this high production of, uh, of testosterone. And so there, the, the, the mechanisms are still being worked out, but there's, there's now starting to be a lot of data that implicates the microbiota, both in positive, but also in negative ways in, in this uh, changes in a hormonal and active hormonal levels. Are there any connections between the microbiome and gut hormones that regulate hunger itself? Um, so another way of saying that maybe is, 
can changes in our diet or changes that we need to make to our diet uh, for, for natural reasons. Like, you know, I could imagine, um, you know, if, if a woman gets pregnant, for example, her, her caloric and her nutrient needs are going to change. Are there any changes there that seem to be mediated by the microbiome? Very much so. So this is an area that I'm uh, tendentially informed about. So I, I'm going to be pretty general about it. But there, there's definitely evidence that uh, the microbiota can influence hunger. Uh, they can influence uh, how uh, the, the feeling of satiety. Uh, and so the the, the 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 microbiota is so tightly related with us that it is influenced by our circadian rhythms. So uh, circadian rhythms mean when um, the, the expectation that our body has uh, of daytime and nighttime and of cycles of feeding and things like that. And so one of the things that uh, uh, anyone that has uh, ever traveled uh, and got on jet lag knows is that there's definitely discomfort <laughs> and changes to your digestive health and uh, the way that you digest things. And that's partly due to the microbiota and not knowing anymore <laughs> what what's going on and expecting food at times that uh, uh, that it's not coming. So there's there's definitely changes uh, that, um, that you can kind of experience in your day-to-day -day life that have to do with the microbiota and the interaction that it has uh, with, um, uh, yeah, with, with our expectation or when food should be coming or how hungry we are. Um, so obviously we've, we've talked a fair amount about how, what we put in our body changes the microbiome. We focused, uh, largely on, on dietary inputs. Um, we talked about antibiotics as well. Um, what about things like pharmaceutical medications? Um, what do we know about, you know, anything from, you know, psychiatric medications to say, um, you know, hormonal medications like birth control do all of, I, I would guess that probably anywhere you look, there's going to be some effect. Um, but what, what are some of the most salient things that we've learned or that we already have some handle on in terms of, uh, uh other medications besides antibiotics that we put into our bodies, um, fairly frequently that are having major changes in the microbiome? This is, I think, a, a very important and growing area of research. So anything that makes it through our gut obviously can be modified, even broken down by the microbiota. But even things that don't start out in our gut can make it there. Uh, we talked about hormones and how they can be modified in the gut. Uh, anything that makes it through our blood system can potentially be modified uh, in in the gut because of the the high interaction between uh, the portal blood system and uh, and the gut and the exchanges that can happen there so there's definitely a, a lot of effort in in trying to understand uh, how different microbes can either enhance the effect of certain drugs or prevent them so to give you an example there are some drugs that can be broken down by the microbiota and so they don't have an effect anymore uh, there are drugs that um, we we deem safe and uh, but they will have a negative effect on the microbiota over longer time scales. So to give you a sense, a lot of the over-the-counter drugs that we take, we talked a little bit about antacids, like this is true of laxatives, they will just change the microbiota because they set up an environment that uh, is not the same anymore. So laxatives of, often work by uh, uh, creating an osmotic imbalance with the gut, which draws out water and increases the motility, while it also draws out water from the bacteria. And some bacteria can't tolerate this. And so they will go away after ex a long-term exposure to, to laxatives. And the the problem though, is that I, I, it doesn't, at least to me, it doesn't make sense to say like, well, we, we shouldn't be using any drugs. Like that's obviously not, not the point. But I think it's important to know that 
just like with any ecosystem, if you apply a change, there will be a response from the ecosystem. And, and knowing what's good, what's bad, what's neutral, those are very loaded words for ecosystems because if you think about a forest, you can probably distinguish a forest that is healthy for one that is unhealthy, but it's hard to know whether a forest is healthier than another one if they both look lush. Yeah. And even if you can easily identify healthy versus unhealthy when they're clearly different, um, that's very different from saying, you know, so, so you can't just look at a healthy forest and be like, oh, it's got X, Y, and Z. So if we put those things in the unhealthy one, it will become healthy. It's, it's exactly. so complex in like literally the, the math sense that you just can't predict system level outcomes from individual changes and in, in individual variables. Absolutely. And and so, you know, in, in thinking about microbiota changes, say that you want to take, uh, as you said, uh, you know, if microbe X is good in you, it may not be good in me because I don't have the rest of its friends that would keep it happy. Right. And so the um, the, the, the way that this, this kind of applies is um, I, I think they will, will have to play out uh, uh, on a on a much more ecosystem level type of uh, um, health approaches. What are um some of the major projects and questions you're working on in your lab right now? Uh, we're very excited about thinking about the microbiota at different scales. So from a more clinical perspective, we study a lot uh, uh, the impact of the microbiota on the inflammatory type of diseases, for example, um, IBD. So Crohn's uh, and colitis are, are some of the, the diseases that we're looking at. And we were connected with clinicians to try to understand uh, how changes in the microbiota and uh, uh, how specific types of bacteria that uh, uh, can cause inflammation, how those change the environment and then lead to a microbiota that is less resilient. Uh, then scaling this down to specific applications, we're interested in how certain types of drugs uh, may affect people that have uh, different types of microbiota. So to give you an example, what happens when uh, uh, people undergo bowel preparation? Uh, that, of course, uh, reduces very strongly the microbes that you have there. Uh, what happens if you lose some of the microbes that are important? And so we're, we're, we're focusing in on specific microbes that we know that are being uh, lost in industrialized human populations and trying to understand, do we want them back? Uh, if we do want them back, uh, can we get them back? Uh, how do they change our immune system? How do they change uh, the interaction between different microbes? And so, you know, in kind of scaling from uh, uh, clinical questions, we kind of go down to the individual cell level and trying to understand how are these microbes producing what they produce? Uh, how are they interacting with other microbes? And how can we strengthen some of the relationships uh, in a way that um, as we proceed towards microbiota therapies, that we have something that, uh, you know, talking about ecosystem restoration, that we actually can uh, um, can make useful for the, the human population as, as a whole. So um, one, one of the things uh, tied to the microbiome that I've heard about that where you see very dramatic results, um, the types of results where they write about in the newspapers and stuff, uh, has to do with fecal transplants. So you perform a fecal transplant in um, animal models, for example, and I believe that they've seen results like, you know, if you do the transplantation from the skinny mouse to the obese mouse, the obese mouse becomes skinny. Um, dramatic results to do with um, diseases of different kinds. So why do fecal transplants seem to produce results that dramatic? And what are maybe one or two of the most um, well-known or well-worked out examples there? Yeah, so the fecal microtransplants um, have been demonstrated 
particularly in animal models, but they've also been shown to be incredibly helpful in combating uh, a C. diff infection. So C. difficile is this pathogen that uh, that often comes up after antibiotic treatment, and then it cannot be eradicated because it's a uh, uh, it's very resistant and in fact it thrives uh, when um, the rest of the microbiota is depleted by antibiotics. So it really takes advantage of uh, a reduced diversity of the microbiota. And so in in early experiment was 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 tried uh, in cases in which uh, patients were were really um, uh, were really struggling and it was kind of deemed to be as a as a last step and a last try was to take a microbiota from a healthy donor and then transplant it. And in those cases, the the efficacy of this treatment was incredible, over ninety percent, which is something that is very rarely seen in any type of uh, uh, therapy that that we would normally deal with. And so this led to this this very strong excitement of how we could restore these uh, disrupted ecosystems by transplanting these these healthy microbes. And and one of the challenges with this is that you know as we talked about, these are, are complex ecosystems which are are very very diverse and very very messy. And so one of the the ethical uh, uh, questions around it is that what constitutes a, a healthy microbiota that we would put into a, a patient that has a specific type of disease, also with the understanding that, say, you may have a very healthy tropical forest and you're trying to transplant it into a desert, well, it probably will not take hold there because you just don't have enough water to support it. And so in, in more complex diseases where this has been tried, the, the efficacy is, is much lower, and we find that a lot of the microbes are not actually able to survive uh, when they're uh, implanted. And so the, the, the this is, I think, something that uh, uh, we, we need to go much more towards precision medicine for this type of approaches, because right now it's a very blunt tool of just saying like, well, we'll take this ecosystem that seems to be healthy in this one person, put it in a completely different person and and, and hope that it uh, provides the same, um, the same types of uh, um, health. So the you know probably the the C diff example is probably one of the the largest examples in in animal models. Uh, there's a lot that has been uncovered both from the perspective of what is transferable. So there's definitely, and as you mentioned, the you know the, the obesity uh, they can even be transferred because sometimes uh, uh, also the opposite experiment was done in which uh, an obese microbiota was transplanted into a skinny microbiota and uh, the skinny mouse became obese. And it turned out that the reason why that happened is because the the microbes from the obese mouse were very, very good at uh, capturing uh, energy. And so they were releasing a lot more energy for the same amount of food to their host than uh, the microbes coming from the the, the skinny microbiota. And so the, there's uh, there's going to be a lot of things that are transferable uh, and, and some things that maybe are not. And so, the, you know, the, this this question about um, transferring obesity is, is one of the things that uh, a lot of patients uh, worry about and want to know about their donor, whether this may be the case. But uh, in, in terms of the, the human data, it's still things that are, are really very much being worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the microbiome uh, has captured a popular consciousness uh, to some extent, to, to a pretty large extent at this point. Um, I think one of the reflections of that is that it's very common to see today uh, people taking probiotics. And I don't mean like someone has a specific deficit, like they had antibiotics and like they know for a fact their microbiome has been depleted. I don't even mean people that have like actual gut issues that have been diagnosed, but just normal people walking around that are just sort of concerned with their health at a normal level. You know, they've heard of microbiome, they've heard of gut health, they see probiotics of all kinds um, marketed out there on store shelves. Um, I know a lot of people in my life that just take a probiotic 
when they take, you know, a vitamin C pill or a vitamin D pill or, or whatever that's part of their daily supplement uh, routine. And as far as I can tell, most of the time, they don't even know maybe what the species are that are in there. They don't really know what's known about them. Taking a sort of a bird's eye view, but thinking about the average consumer out there, the average person, what are your thoughts on the probiotic products that are out there? Um, do you take any? How should people think about that? Um, do we know enough that it even makes sense that people are buying these things? What's, what's your take on the probiotic uh, supplement industry? I think we're very much in the early days and it's an industry that has very much been exploited because of the excitement that uh, uh, that people have around diet and around supplements. And so we've tested uh, several in the lab and we found that sometimes it's, they're not alive. Uh, often they're not the species that they say they are. And so the, the ones that are not regulated tend to tend to often not be what they're marketed to be. That said, they're unlikely to do harm uh, because they they do they do tend to be bacteria that uh, are are easy to to be grown uh, and they also tend to be not the type of bacteria that adults would have, which is one of the the, the parts that I think that is um, most bizarre about the use of probiotics is that they tend to be. Uh, bacteria like Lactobacillus, Bifidobacterium, all of these bacteria that are thought to be mostly, or they're found mostly in, in babies, uh, mm. not in adults. Uh, and so th there's a little bit of a disconnect about uh, uh, how relevant they would even be uh, with an adult uh, taking the supplement, which is usually the case when that happens. There are uh, probiotics that have been, that have shown efficacy in uh, in human studies for very specific uh, um, I guess indications, but in those cases, I think it's it it is important to try to see what they're being used for and how they're being used. Uh, one of the the challenge with microbiota therapy is that oftentimes, even when we want a micro a microbe to stick around, and we provide it in a in a probiotic form, it will actually just transit through. And so that's part of the you know the idea with saying that for the most part they will cause no harm. Uh, but one of the challenges is that even if you do find that a uh, microbe that you really, really want, uh, it's maybe uh, not something that you're able to have and stick around. And then conversely, there there are microbes that, for as I was saying, for specific indications, have been shown to be very important. You know, an, an example of this uh, uh, is E. coli nissel. And so this was a was a microbe that had been found um, in 1917 uh, during uh, uh, World War One, when uh, there was like this uh, outbreak. Uh, of uh, of salmonella and there was like this this one soldier that um, had uh, uh, had shown that, that it was resistant to this and it turned out uh, that it had this microbe that basically was providing colonization colonization resistance from this pathogen uh, just based on the fact that it had a, a similar uh, a similar way of of nutrient uh, requirements than the salmonella did and so basically displaced it based on this and so there are some microbes that have. Um, been very well worked out uh, for how they work and how they could protect uh, from specific things, but we're not there for most of the ones that you would see in, um, uh, yeah, in stores. So it, it sounds like a fair summary of your perspective for the average consumer is that a majority of the time, a healthy majority of the time, um, you know, the casual consumer 
um, someone who's just concerned about gut health, but, but, you know, doesn't have a super specific thing with a super specific diagnosis where a particular species of bacteria is known to be the solution. The average consumer probably not worth it to stress about taking a daily probiotic. Again, with the, uh, with the caveat of, uh, of not giving a medical advice, I, it, it probably doesn't make the big of a difference. But I, but I think that for all things that have to do with with health and diet, we're, we're not there yet at the level of looking at one person and, and being able to say, these are the bacteria that you need. This is the diet that you should have with these bacteria. We're, we're getting there, but we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's an important space for for people to, to try different things and see what works with, for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, because sometimes there are things that uh, are unexpected. Uh, you know, the, this is, has happened a lot with, uh, for example, with IBD patients that they have found that certain types of food that, you know, normally would be counterindicated uh, uh, in general for patients with inflammatory diseases actually have found that that help them. And so I think that there, there also needs to be some openness from both the scientific and, uh, you know, clinical perspective that there are a lot of things that we don't know. And even sometimes a, a traditional medicines that we've discounted because in some types of trials have not worked, they may work for individuals. And so there's there's so much diversity, not only from the microbial side, also from the human side, that there will be things that are not standard that work for some people. And, and I think it's important to be open to those as well. Can you actually, you know, just give us the basics on what IBD is um, and, and how common it is. One gets the, I get the impression just sort of walking around and, and hearing about it from people that it seems to be becoming more prevalent. So is that true? And, and what exactly is IBD? Yeah. Inflammatory bowel disease is, a, uh, is, is an inflammatory disease that, uh, as the name says, involves uh, uh, the digestive tract. And one of the things that that I think is uh, most critical about inflammatory bowel disease is the the level of of pain and, and effect on uh, uh, the daily life that it has on on patients that have it. Uh, it's it's an extremely challenging uh, disease that uh, it's it's invisible because it's it's not something that will be overt. And so people that suffer from this disease are are often feeling unseen, uh, and uh, they're. Um, uh, it, it's also because of uh, affecting the the bowel is something that uh, that is hard to deal with and explain when sometimes like you might have to go to the bathroom really quickly, and the prevalence uh, is is quite high. It's almost at one percent uh, uh, in in North America, and uh, it's by by twenty fifty is expected to be at at one percent of the population, which is is it's an incredible uh, fraction of uh, uh, of of the population. Uh, it's also being diagnosed earlier and earlier uh, in in. in there's a lot more pediatric patients than there used to be. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about inflammatory bowel disease is that while it has a genetic component that is being, still being sorted out, and this is a, a, a pro-inflammatory response that the immune system has uh, uh, and uh, uh, effects on the, on the intestine specifically, the genes that are involved with this are actually genes that have been known to be around uh, human communities at least since since until the the Black Plague. So there was recently a study that showed uh, how some of the genes that helped protect us against the plague in uh, the medieval times were actually selected upon, and those are are genes that uh, are known to uh, um, be. Um, positively correlated. So it seemed to be um, at least enriched in people that have uh, IBD. And one of the things that for a long time scientists wondered about is that, well, if these genes have been around for so long, why are we only seeing 
IBD mm. now? Why is this a, a modern disease? So, so just to make sure I'm following, you're saying that there's genetic evidence that uh, p- people who survived the Black Plague because they had a genome that enabled them to survive the Black Plague, uh, their descendants are now more abundant uh, than the descendants of people who who didn't live through that plague and, and pass on their genes. And those same genes seem to be connected to IBD. Exactly. Yeah. So th- those genes tend to be, when enriched, they, they tend to correlate with the um, development of the disease. The, the thing that's interesting too about IBD is that while those genes have been present since at least medieval times. They, the first diagnosis of IBD did not happen until the 1800s. And also it only happened in industrialized uh, countries. So when we look mm. at, for example, uh, in certain countries in Asia, the first diagnosis of IBD has happened much more recently and really strongly correlates uh, with uh, industrialization. So it, it correlates with the uh, changes uh, that have to do with um, uh, increased use of drugs, uh, increased uh, uh, use of uh, of foods that are highly processed, uh, and the changes in, in lifestyle that we kind of associate uh, with, with industrialization itself. And that's really where the microbiota plays in a role, because while our genome has stayed relatively stable over this time, one of the things that has changed very much uh, has been our, our microbes. And what we see in, uh, in patients with inflammatory bowel disease is that they tend to have much lower diversity of the microbiota, and they t- tend to have a microbiota that it's pro-inflammatory. So instead of having these microbes that produce uh, these anti-inflammatory compounds that we were talking about earlier, the searching fatty acids, we actually see that they produce uh, compounds that uh, uh, tend to be pro-inflammatory and tend to have species that uh, can uh, cause inflammation uh, throughout the body. Interesting. Um, so when you talk about uh, fostering a healthy micro, giving the microbiome uh, what it needs to to thrive, and and be a healthy microbiome, relatively speaking, um, the thing that you talk about most there, I'm, I, in terms of dietary components, is fiber. So we've talked about that um, high high fiber. Um, a sufficiently high fiber content in your diet is important for the microbiome because that's a primary food source for the uh, microbes that are living in your large intestine. Are there any, you talked about fermented foods as well. So fiber fermented foods, those are the ones I hear about the most. Are there any other big ones in terms of uh, nutrients in our diet that are good for the microbiome? And then the flip side of that, are there any things in the diet, any particular components that um, tend to be good for a a not so healthy microbiome? Yeah. So other things that um, I think that in general, having a, a diet that is diverse and uh, has enough of the the nutrients that you think about being healthy for the human tend to be also healthy for the microbiota. Um, the The fiber part is is definitely one of the the major sources of nutrients for the microbiota, but the microbiota also requires uh, a lot of the, the same nutrients that we otherwise would think about. Uh, you know, whether uh, it's making sure that there's nitrogen. Uh, one of the things, for example, in the gut is that there's a there's a very high shortage of uh, uh, of iron and the the body does this on purpose not to have overgrowth. So you know anyone that has tried taking a lot of uh, iron supplements like may suffer from constipation through the microbiota being able to overgrow. So there's there's a lot of uh, other nutrients that we usually don't think about that will affect the microbiota through this. On the other side, the the nutrients that may have a negative impact on the microbiota as it relates to our own health are. Are things like uh, emulsifiers. Uh, those will 
they can negative impact the microbiota because, for example, when you're taking emulsifiers, uh, so these are compounds that often are, are used in um, in foods to hold them together uh, instead of having them separate uh, between the, the oil parts. So you can think about uh, salad dressings and things like that have a lot of emulsifiers. And those are things that uh, work a little bit like soaps. And so when you take them, they will also wash things off in your intestines. Now, for example, the mucus layer that we were talking about that uh, creates uh, this this healthy barrier between us and the microbiota and also can disrupt the membranes of the microbiota. We talked a little bit about uh, alternative sugars and how those ones can be cheap sugars for the microbiota. They will still give us energy, even though they're technically not taken up by, by our own cells directly. Uh, and so there's, there's a lot of um, different compounds that can have uh, these effects that are indirect uh, and they can negatively affect our health. I see. So, so emulsifiers are one because they literally wash away some of the microbes in our gut. They, they will disrupt uh, surfaces that have, uh, um, have some fats and uh, associated with them. So uh, again, these are kind of indirect effects, but they can yeah. change the membranes of these microbes and um, take off some of our, our mucus protective layer. I see. So it's, it's altering the gut environment in a way that's then going to naturally lead to uh, different populations thriving or dying off. Exactly. Interesting. Um, any, other, any other major ones? That you can think of or that have been clearly demonstrated you know the in practice anything that we take by mouth will change the microbiota and knowing whether it's good bad or neutral as we were saying is is going to be challenging um you know one, one of the things that i think that it's interesting in, in thinking about more obvious things like you know taking antibiotics is that the microbiota itself produces antibiotics all the time and in fact a lot of the antibiotics that we have are produced by the microbiota the problem is not the compound. The problem is the amount and the location. Mm. When microbes produce antibiotics, they do it to have very short chain range interactions with microbes around them and keep those at bay. But when we take antibiotics, we take them and we flood the entire system with super high concentrations of them, which are then not natural. You know, things like vancomycin have been in the repertoire of antibiotics of our earth for millions of years and you know within 30 years we were able to ruin it <laughs> and be, make it become uh, um, not uh, successful anymore because now there's resistance you know and despite this millions of years of use of this uh, antibiotic by the microbiota it was able the microbiota used it so locally that it did not give rise to resistance and so that's that's going to be happening similarly to other compounds too uh, one of the issues that we have with the um with the way that we take compounds by mouth is that we we tend to to flush our system with very high levels of things like even uh, contraceptives and uh, other compounds and medicines that we take by mouth, if only we had a way to have them more localized, they could have a, a very uh, more limited impact uh, and, and have different effects and impact our the rest of our ecosystem uh, in a way that is hmm. less major yeah so, that, that makes that makes sense if we are taking medications and other things systemically oftentimes the benefit or the thing that we want to happen is a more local is a more local thing it's happening you know in particular cells or particular parts of the body so if you had a local delivery mechanism you would naturally decrease the side effects that are going to come from that thing going elsewhere and just doing other stuff 
Yeah, and and I think that actually that is also one of the reasons why the microbiota is so exciting as a therapeutic, and this is something that uh, my lab also works on, is trying to see can we leverage the microbiota as a way to have a very specific delivery system. So now you can think about these microbes, they sense their environment, they're able to tell when, say, there's uh, changes due to inflammation, there's changes because maybe cells are growing faster, and so the temperature is higher because uh, there's a cancer there. Those cells can detect these changes in the ecosystem, and if the detection of those changes was tied to the delivery of specific drugs, then now you have drugs that are carried by these microbes that can be delivered only at the site where they need to be delivered. And so like this delivery of drugs uh, through the, the microbiota is, is one of the frontiers that uh, they were thinking a lot about in, in the next stage of, uh, of therapeutics. What's um, one good example of a major unanswered question to do with the microbiome that you think we will likely um, have solid answers to in the near future, meaning, you know, let's call it two or three years? A really major question that I think that we'll have answered is how the microbiota can insert itself. So, you know, we were talking about from the perspective of the probiotics, like it, it can be really important if we want to restore species, can we get them back? And so this question of when are we able to get them back, I think is going to be a major one that will be answered. Uh, you know, on one side, uh, we may be able to do fecal microbiota transplants of our own microbiota to restore it. But what if we wanted to take microbes that we have never been exposed to? You know, do we need to do this in infancy or can we do this later? Uh, I think this is going to, it's a very important question. And I think it's one that we'll be able to answer in the next few years. Um. I have not looked into these in detail, but there are now companies out there selling products where um, you take a sample from your mouth or from the other side of your body and they you send it in and they analyze it and they can give you a fingerprint of your microbiome and apparently give you, you know, diet recommendations and things like that based based on those results. Um, do you think those are legitimate? Is that is that is that tech there? Is is our ability to do that accurately um, in place? And are those things that could be worth looking into for those interested? There's starting to be some studies, particularly out of Israel, that uh, are correlating the the breakdown of specific um, fibers and sugars uh, with specific microbiota makeups. But it, but I think we're still in pretty pretty early days. So right now, if you were to uh, phenotype your microbiota, you basically would get a list of species. And so think about what that would mean if you were looking at the species in, um, in in a park, right? Like there's 50 lions and 73 gazella and right, it's, it's not that informative. It doesn't really tell you about, are the lions healthy? Uh, are, are there enough gazelles? And, and so we're still at the stage of, by, by looking at these list of microbes, there's only so much information that that you can have. Like you can know that maybe there's no elephants there. And actually I think that for your environment, you really should have elephants. Um, but we're we're not there yet at the level of um, of having this, this phenotyping be useful enough, except in extreme cases, right? Like if you have a lot of invasive species, then it becomes obvious that something needs to happen. But again, like if you have something that looks relatively healthy, we still need more data to know uh, you should be eating more broccoli and have more bacteroides in you. Uh, we're, we're not there yet. Um, well, I mean, we've gone over a lot. Um, 
based anything to do with the microbiome, anything that we went over that you want to reiterate or any final thoughts you want to leave people with given the topics that we touched on today? Yeah. So I think that the main thing is it's a really exciting time for the microbiome. I think that there's this renaissance and appreciation of uh, uh, the importance that it has, it, I think it's a it's a little bit like it was in the early 2000s for the the human genome, right? Of the the, the I think the promise that it has and uh, for revolutionizing medicine. And one of the the challenges with the I think with the human genome is that the um, people got so excited about it that then they got a little bit burnt out uh, because then some of the the impacts were not seen right away. You know, gene therapies we're starting to see it now. You know, 20 plus years later. And so I think that we're a little bit in the same phase for the microbiome is that there's there's sometimes a bit too much hype uh, in, in that uh, it does affect things throughout the body, but in terms of seeing solutions for how to get ourselves be better, we'll need a lot more than saying, here's your pill and uh, you'll be fixed. So in, in thinking about these, uh, I think that the main thing that is important is to think about them as, as big ecosystems that we carry around that we should take care of and try to make sure to uh, to reestablish and feed and keep diverse. Uh, but but they're, but they're not things that are likely going to be fixed by by one pill at any point, because just like with the with gardens and with forests, there needs to be a, a good amount of attention and, and care for them throughout the diversity of species and, and interactions that they have with us. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Um, thank you very much again for joining me. This was interesting. We covered, I've covered the microbiome before, but we got to stuff today that um, was very different than anything I've talked about with other people. So, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for, yeah, for the interview. This is fun to chat.